This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. We've got another track for you to add to your summer playlist. These are verses that we hope we can all come back to, that we hope encourage us, remind us of the truths about who Jesus is, about the love of God for us. We hope they'll be an encouragement to you this summer as we study them together. You know, these verses that we can come back to are kind of like songs that remind us of favorite memories or maybe a fun vacation that we took when we were younger. One of my most favorite memories and one of the best vacations I've ever taken was the summer before my senior year in high school. My dad and I and some of my friends and their dads took a sailing trip in the Florida Keys. We sailed all the way down to Key West, spent a couple days there and sailed back on a 40 foot sailboat. Now, this was before the era of playlists. Spotify hadn't been invented. This was more the era of mixtapes. But we did have a CD player on the boat. The problem was we only had one album to listen to for this entire week-long vacation. So I'm not exaggerating. We listened to one album on repeat all day, every day for seven days. It was the perfect summer playlist for our trip. It was the iconic album, Songs You Know By Heart by Jimmy Buffett. Now, this is, a, this is a playlist of Buffett's greatest hits. And if you're not a Buffett fan and you would like to be, which you all should be, here's what I would encourage you to do. Head to Florida, jump on a boat, listen to this album on repeat for a week, and I assure you, you will come back and be a diehard parrothead at the end of the day. Now, you might not think of Jimmy Buffett as a profound lyrical artist. I mean, songs like Cheeseburger in Paradise and Margaritaville and Grapefruit Juicy Fruit don't exactly inspire us. But there is one song on that album that I think is deeply profound. It's the tune that's called He Went to Paris. Do you know it? He went to Paris looking for answers to questions that bothered him so. You know, Bob Dylan said true story, that that was one of his favorite songs. What I love about the song, He Went to Paris, is that it's the story of a man who grapples with really important questions. It says the questions in his life bothered him so much. He wanted answers to deep questions, so much so that he left the United States, hopped on a freighter, and headed all the way to Paris to seek answers to these deep questions. We all have deep questions in our life. Like, why am I here? What's my purpose? What does all of it mean? I'd like to spend some time with you today answering a deep question, an important one. I would venture to say it's the most important question that we can ask and certainly the most important answer that we can arrive at. It's this, who is Jesus? Now, I don't know if you would say that's an important question for you. It might not be something you're curious about. It might not be something that you would say bothers you so much that you would change your life in order to investigate it. The truth is a lot of people have a varying number of answers to that question. If you're watching this with a group of friends or maybe with your home group or with your family, you might pause the video right now and just talk amongst yourselves about what are some of the ways we've heard people answer this question of who is Jesus? How do they answer it? Here are some ways I've heard people answer that question. Oh, Jesus was a great moral teacher. 
or he was an important historical figure. Or perhaps he was a social reformer who made changes in the first century that have continued on today. Or maybe even he was a gifted prophet of God. But today I'd like to show you an answer to this question from a man who knew Jesus, who had met him face to face. And when he encountered Jesus, his opinion, his answer about Jesus completely changed. He changed from being a sworn enemy of Jesus, someone who hated him who hated him so strongly that he tried to stop the spread of the early church, someone who approved of the execution of early Christians because of his hatred for Jesus. And then after he met Jesus face to face, his life was changed, altered so much that he is a major figure who has contributed to the change of the world in history. It's the Apostle Paul. He met Jesus face to face and had a life-altering encounter, which changed his opinion of him. So if you have a Bible, would you open it with me to the first letter, excuse me, to the letter to the Colossians in chapter 1. Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, chapter 1. These words were written by Paul because they had questions about Jesus. There were some people inside of the church who were rising up that were causing confusion about the truth about who Jesus was, and Paul wanted to set them straight to help them answer the question of who is Jesus. And so that's one of the major reasons why he wrote this letter. And I think in the verses that we're going to look at today, just three of them, he gives one of the most important answers to this fundamental question that we all must answer in our life, who is Jesus? So Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15, Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Paul begins answering this question of who is Jesus by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, before we talk about Jesus, we have to talk about God and what we learn about him in this verse, in the very first part where it says that God is invisible. What does that mean? That means that God lacks a physical body like you and I have. It means that God is spirit. The Apostle John, in the gospel that he wrote about Jesus in the first chapter where he has another beautiful explanation of who Jesus is, says this in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God because God is invisible. But Jesus makes visible what otherwise is invisible. He makes the invisible God visible to us. He is the manifestation of God, the very representation of God to creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Another way to think about that is that God is like Jesus because Jesus shows us who God is, and Jesus is the exact representation of the nature and the character of God. Which means without question that Jesus is God himself. He is the image of the invisible God. 
And so therefore, Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus is the image of God, the image of the invisible God. Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, some people have tripped up uh, because of this verse. They think it sounds like Jesus was physically born, the firstborn of all creation. But of course, we know that Jesus was not created, and this verse is not describing a sequence of events. Firstborn is not a timeline for us to understand when Jesus was created. No, firstborn is a title given to Jesus. He is the firstborn of creation. This helps us understand the position that Jesus holds over all created things, that he has first place over creation because firstborn is a title. Jesus has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. He is the heir of all things. He receives everything. This, of course, is how the ancient world described the way that titles and power and most possessions would be passed on from generation to generation to the firstborn son. Our family was talking about this process the other day, and we have three kids, our oldest daughter, McKenna, and then two boys, uh, Cooper and Beckett. And as we were talking about this, Cooper asked the question, Dad, does that mean that if we lived in the olden days that because I'm the firstborn son, I would get all the money? I thought about it for a moment and said, yeah, Cooper, I suppose if we lived in the olden days, you would get all the money. He goes, cool. He's 10. And then McKenna, of course, is offended by this. And she said, well, that's not fair. And then an argument ensues between who gets all the money. I said, whoa, 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 hold on. Let me just remind you of a couple of things. First of all, we're not land barons, so it's not like there's a lot of stuff to go around here. And second of all, whatever we left, have left over after raising the three of you will be sure to distribute equally between the three of you. But the idea of firstborn is used in other places in the scriptures too, especially in the Old Testament. It's used as a title to describe Israel in Exodus chapter 4. It says that Israel was the firstborn. Now, was Israel the first nation on the earth? Of course not. But it's a title. It demonstrates the position, the place that Israel holds in the heart of God, that they are his chosen people, that he loves them, that they have first place amongst all nations in the eyes of God because he has chosen them. And so Israel receives a similar title to Jesus, firstborn. And this language is common throughout the Old Testament. We can look at Psalm 89, which is a prophecy about Jesus. In verse 27, it says this. This is the Lord speaking. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. God promised that his chosen Messiah, Jesus, would be the firstborn, a title. And he would be the highest of the kings of the earth. King is another title that's often used to describe Jesus and often used in the biblical narrative to describe God's Messiah, what he would be like and how he would reign. You can think of things from Isaiah that describe the government that will have no end and that, that the Messiah will be the Prince of Peace. And in Luke chapter 1, when the prophecy comes about Jesus who's going to be born again, he is described with a language of the king. Even in Revelation, of his kingdom, there will be no end and he will reign forever and ever. This is the description of God's chosen savior, the Messiah, the king, 
Jesus. And so Jesus, as Paul describes his position, his power, his preeminence, uses the language of firstborn and also uses the language of a king. So Jesus is the king of creation. That's who Paul is describing in verse 15 here, that Jesus is the king of creation. And in verses 16 and 17, he's going to help us understand how Jesus rules and reigns as the king over all creation. So let's look, look at verse 16. Verse 16 of Colossians chapter 1 says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. So first, Jesus is the designer of creation which means there is a plan and purpose behind everything that has been made. We're not here by chance. It's not a random occurrence. Jesus in eternity past, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, designed together the idea of creation to bring glory to themselves, to share the love that had existed in the Trinity forever and ever with all created things, and to ultimately redeem a people for himself. That's the purpose, the design of creation. And Jesus is the designer of all things. And when Paul says, for by him all things were created, he means all things, everything. It goes on to say, in heaven. So the spiritual world and everything that's in it, the unseen spiritual reality, all was created by the king of creation, Jesus whether in heaven or on the earth. So the physical world, everything that we see was created by Jesus, visible and invisible. From the tallest mountain to the smallest subatomic particle, all of it was made and created and designed by Jesus. He designed it all. All things were created by him. And it goes on to say whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What do those four words mean? That is kind of a hierarchical structure or an organizational chart of angelic beings. Now, it doesn't matter who's in what position and what they all mean. The point that Paul is making here is that every single angelic being, all spiritual beings were created, designed by Jesus now, if you know the story of angels throughout the biblical story, you understand that all angels were created good. And at some time in eternity past, some angels fell. They decided that they were tempted by power and fell and became evil. So that means Jesus created all angelic beings. And, and that means that Jesus has authority over all of them. So that means ultimately, even Satan even demons, even those evil angelic beings are under the authority of the king of creation, Jesus. So they may blaspheme him. They may cause problems for his followers. They may entice people to do all sorts of evil things. But ultimately, as the king of creation, Jesus has authority over them. We see this evidenced in the New Testament gospel narratives where Jesus casts out demons who have possessed people by name and they all must listen to his authority. They all must follow his rule because he is the king of creation, the designer of creation. He also is the builder of creation. Paul goes on at the end of verse 16 to say, all things were created through him. 
He is the agent or instrument, the builder of creation. He put it all together. The earth, the sun, the planets, the solar system, all things were created through him. He's the builder. And so you and I were created through Jesus. All things were created through him. So when the study of science occurs, whether it's astronomy or physics or biology or medicine, all of it is discovering the handiwork of the craftsman, of the builder of creation, Jesus. So he's the designer of creation. He's the builder of creation. And at the end of verse 16, we see he is also the owner of creation. Paul says all things were created for him. We've already said that Jesus is the designer. He's the builder. He's the one who made all things. But who did Jesus build it all for? Why did Jesus design and build creation? And who is it for? He built it for himself and for his purposes. It all belongs to him. Think about when a house is commissioned to be built or someone steps into a building project and they're building an office building or some other large complex. Who is that building for? You know, you might bring in an architect to design it. You might bring in a general contractor to build it. And those people are deeply invested in those projects. But at the end of the day, they must turn the keys to that house or to that building over to the owner because it's ultimately for them, for them to occupy, for them to use, for their purposes, for them to enjoy, for them to live in. The purpose of creation is for Jesus because he owns it all. Everything was created for him. So it means that all things belong to him, that he has ownership over all things, and that all things reflect his glory. They communicate who Jesus is, how powerful and amazing the Son of God is, because they are for him. And that everything that has been created ultimately finds its purpose in Jesus which means we were created for Jesus, not for ourselves, not for experiences, not for our spouses or for our children or for our family or for our work, but we were ultimately created for Jesus. And we will find the deepest soul satisfaction in him because we were created for him, not for ourselves. That's what some people say. If you want to find the ultimate purpose in life, just look inside yourself and you'll discover it. That's not what Paul says. Paul says if you want to find the deep, soul-satisfying purpose of your life, look to Jesus because you were created for him. And verse 17 begins by saying, he is before all things, which helps us and reminds us that Jesus is eternal. He is before all things that have been created. Without him, not anything was made that was made. In the beginning, he was with God. He is the uncaused, eternal creator of all things, the king of creation, King Jesus. And at the end of verse 17, we learn the fourth way that Jesus reigns and rules as the king of creation. He's the designer. He's the builder. He's the owner. And at the end of verse 17, we see that he is the sustainer of creation. Paul says that in him, 
all things hold together. All the physical laws of the universe are held together by the power of the king of creation. We can count on the sun rising tomorrow because Jesus holds it all together, because he sustains all things. We can have confidence in the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the water that we drink, because Jesus is sustaining it. And so we can have confidence as we live that Jesus has it held all together, that he has it in control, and we can live without fear because of who Jesus is, the sustainer of creation. You know, it's more than likely that these three verses we've looked at, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, were a part of the playlist of the Colossian church in the first century. Most commentators agree that this perhaps was an early hymn that Christians sung about Jesus to remind themselves of who he is, what he has done, and the confidence they can have in their king, Jesus. Now, whether or not that's true that it was a hymn, I think is secondary to this important issue. This letter was written probably 30 years after Jesus died and returned to heaven. Within 30 years, the early church knew exactly who Jesus was, the uncaused king of creation. When you hear people answer the question of who is Jesus, and if they say uh, he was a great moral teacher or he was a gifted prophet, many of them will qualify it with the following statement. But I think we've gotten a little carried away with all the things we say about Jesus. Those people who think he's God, I think they've just gotten it wrong over history. Oh, or over the last 2,000 years, the church has stepped in and just gotten confused and gotten out of control about their beliefs about Jesus. No. The earliest followers of Jesus, the, one who, the ones who knew him personally, like Paul, like John, unquestionably believed that Jesus was God himself, that Jesus was the uncaused king of creation. And they sang about it together, perhaps in this hymn, in this song. You know, that Buffett song that we talked earlier about, the song ends in kind of a depressing way. The man who had left everything to find the answers to questions that bothered him so. At the end of his life, he's reflecting on it. And he had some ups and downs. He had some very difficult times in his life. And one of the final verses says that as the tears were fallen, he was recalling the answers he never found. Do you know why he didn't find answers to questions? The song tells us that life got in the way of his seeking of those answers. He had a good life. He enjoyed it. And instead of actually pursuing the answers to the questions that bothered him so much, he just got distracted. Life got in the way. And the song ends on kind of a depressing note. He never found the answers that he was seeking. Let's not be those people who let life get in the way to life's important questions, the ones that we must answer. So if you're keeping Jesus at arm's length because you're not sure whether he would have any bearing on your life today, I want you to know that you were created by Jesus and you were created for Jesus. So is Jesus the king of your life? Does he have authority over all aspects of your life, over your work life, over your social life, over your life with your family, over your married life, perhaps over your singled life, before over your sexual life, before over your emotional life? Does Jesus have authority in all areas 
of your life. If he is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, if he is the king of creation, the one who made everything and holds all things together, isn't he worthy to be the king of your life? Now you might say, how could I possibly as a person relate to the uncaused king of creation? That's a good question. And we're going to talk about that next week. So I hope you'll join us for Calvary Online as we unpack that idea of how could people relate to the king of creation. But before we close, I want to remind you of Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which Paul also wrote to describe the way that we can come into relationship with the king of creation. Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is another word for king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So don't let life get in the way of these important questions, of these important answers. You could surrender your life to Jesus right now. You could call on him to save you. You could confess with your mouth that Jesus is king and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the promise of God is that you will be saved. I encourage you to come into the kingdom of the king of creation where you will find purpose and life and salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of life that you have given, that you have designed, that you have brought into existence. I pray for my friends today that they would have a deeper confidence in who you are, that their faith would be strengthened and grown because you are the king of creation. I pray, Lord, for any friend who might be listening today that does not yet know you. I pray by your power, King Jesus, you might reveal yourself to them and draw them in to be a part of your kingdom. We pray all of this in your powerful and glorious name. Amen. As we close, our worship team is going to lead a song of response. I might encourage you to consider the answer to this question of who is Jesus and ask yourself, where do I stand with him right now? Are all aspects of my life under the authority of King Jesus?